Empire lie from the Empire of Lies. An oasis of truth, free speech, and actual journalism in the Empire of Lies. I'm Lee Strahan, and we're joined today by guest co-host J.C. Goodman on Truth Tuesday on The Backstory. Jason Goodman, welcome. How you doing? Hi, Lee. I'm great, Lee. How are you? So I'm, I'm fine. I, as, as I was telling Rod, I got a lot of sleep this weekend. And some big news. And a great show today Rod's put together for us. First, in the first hour, from London, and that's not normal, the great Jamal Thomas, co-host of Fall Lines with Thomas and Chan. In the mornings nice. on Sputnik, he's in London. Great. Because, of course, they have a new prime minister in the UK. Are, yeah. you, excited, are you excited, Jason? I'm definitely interested to hear what's going on over there. I don't know if this new prime minister is exciting or not. Well, if you like nuclear war, she is. Right. She's very excited. <laughs> yeah. She's got an itchy trigger finger. That's one way of putting it. Then in the second hour, we go from the queen to the bail queen, the bail queen of New York, Michelle Eskenazi, the bail queen of New York, is joining us in the second hour. And it's always good when Michelle's on. And Jason, with you and Michelle on, we have two New Yorkers who are excited about crime in New York. Well, I don't know if we're excited about it. Excited about ending it. Well, excitement sometimes means running from criminals. Did Fair you enough. see the footage <laughs> of the of the car thing going on, of the car yeah. going down the street? I don't even know how to describe it. The car going I'll down the street it. in New York, and then the other car banging into the car. It was like smash-up derby. It was, it was worse than did that. Did you see that footage? I did. It was a very modest, normal kind of mini SUV, like any kind of Toyota anybody would drive. Driving along, it was like yes. 96th Street and 2nd Avenue or something. And then a really expensive Mercedes coupe comes up alongside of it. Now, in the opening of the video, the Mercedes is showing a bit of damage, like there's already been something going on. But then the Mercedes engages, I need to look at what this maneuver is called because they teach you this when you like do like a secret service or a police driving class. But if you pull up next to someone while you're driving on the driver's side rear wheel, and then you turn your car inward, it causes the lead car to spin out. So they did that. What is it called? A pit maneuver. The Mercedes does a pit maneuver on the SUV SUV spins out and goes up on the sidewalk where pedestrians scatter. Then the Mercedes does the pit maneuver again. The SUV gets jammed up. Passenger gets out of the Mercedes with a gun, smashes the window, steals a bag that the New York Post tells us had $20,000 in cash in it. But the Mercedes looks to me like it did more than $20,000 worth of damage to its own car in getting that money. So this seems like criminals who know each other and know what's in one car or the other, driving stolen cars. I haven't heard a single thing about it beyond that video. Now, it was, and that's a very, very good description, Jason. Rod, you saw that, right? It was all over Twitter, that footage. Yeah. You, yeah. you saw that, right? 
I don't know if Rod's there still. Yeah. Well, I did see it. I did see it. Yeah. And Jason described it very well. But it's crazy. It seems like mm. uh, Dukes of Hazard stuff in Midtown Manhattan. Broad daylight. Of, yeah. With, with German cars. Right. <laughs> well, Japanese and German. It was like a World War II scene played out there. <laughs> it's very exciting. Uh, Grand Theft Auto. That's exactly right, Rod. It was Grand Theft Auto on the street. I mean, you know, we're joking about it, guys, but this is the breakdown of civilized society when that sort of thing is going on because these criminals have just no concern whatsoever about being thwarted by the police. But in honesty, it does make for good footage. It's It's exciting for Twitter, yeah. If you start your own car smash TikTok channel, that's a great (laughs) way to do it. Yeah. So that and more on the backstory. Because there's a lot of news in the headlines, Jason. But what did you think was the most consequential, most important world story that happened this weekend? Because I know what I think it was. The, the, the biggest event, and it's actually several events, that are going to have the most long-term consequences for people. What do you think that was, Jason? It's going to be something that's less sensational initially. Like, I probably, you know, Russia's turning off the gas to the EU, maybe. I'm going to go with, that's a pretty big one. But I, we'll, we'll talk about that later. But I'm going to go with, did you see the protests in Prague, Czechoslovakia? Nope. So their low estimate is 100,000 people. The high estimates, 700,000. It was a huge protest. Literally, whatever, a central square in Prague, filled with people. Look it up. And the Ukrainians said 100,000, but other people said 700. But the point Mm -hmm. is, a huge protest. It was a protest against NATO. It was against NATO and for neutrality in the Russian-Ukraine conflict for neutrality. Mm-hmm. It was against the sanctions and against NATO. That happened in Prague. Then the next day in Cologne, Germany, not as big, but a very big protest in Cologne, Germany. Mm-hmm. Then there's also a big protest in France. These are against NATO. This is why you didn't hear anything about it, Jason. Yeah. Well, and also Reuters is saying it's only tens of thousands, but you're saying hundreds of thousands. They're downplaying it, Lee. Well, well, don't take my word for it. Take take a look. Just no, no. I'm looking. Type, There's tons of people. Right now, I, I don't know how quickly you can count to a hundred thousand, so don't right. count them. But no. that is a huge protest. That's not tens of thousands of people, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, I just I think that Reuters is prone to, uh, you know, lie. Yes. Is, <laughs> was that the word you were looking for? Yes. Yes. So. But you think if this is a big Prague anti-Russian, we hate Putin. No. And I, holding I up that, pictures. No, people in Putin countries pe- like that, they know. There's people our age in countries like that, Lee, who are like, oh, here comes communism again. We don't want to have anything to do with this. And that, I think, is what's going on. Well, that ties into in Chile. Did you hear the people defeated the Constitution? 
They were oh. voting on a new constitution in Chile. And the new mm. constitution was, they're calling in the media progressive. But right. I'm going to say that means establishment liberal. It had, you know, global warming and all of that stuff, protections, and that people defeated it mm. soundly. Yeah. Yeah, CNN but, calls it a leftist constitution. So if CNN calls it leftist, that's left. Well, well, I think that's a smear by CNN. They're trying wow. to avoid the fact that that's really because let, let me ask a question. Do you consider Joe Biden leftist? In some senses, you could say, well, he pays lip service to woke politics, yeah. but he's no, a corporatist. Yeah, he's a criminal, fascist, authoritarian, technocratic. I just think he's totally corrupt. He doesn't necessarily have any clear ideology. Yes, he's a fascist because yeah. fascism is not really an ideology. Fascism is more of a technique of mm. controlling the masses. Yeah. And we'll hear. In fact, let's let's since we're talking about Joe Biden, we got a lot of clips. So I got to start getting to him. Let's hear a little of Joe Biden's red speech. Yeah. You know, the, the creepy speech. Let's hear the first clip along and see if it makes any sense. He calls MAGA extremists, but he doesn't point out what extreme views they have. And he says, stuff's not normal. Yeah. And I agree, but the not normal parts... He's promoting. So let's <laughs> exactly. Hit, let's hit that clip. Hit it. And now, America must choose to move forward or to move backwards. To build a future or obsess about the past. To be a nation of hope and unity and optimism. Or a nation of fear, division, and of darkness. MAGA Republicans have made their choice. They embrace anger. They thrive on chaos. They live not in the light of truth, but in the shadow of lies. But together, together we can choose a different path. That, that statement really stuck out at me when he said it firstly, because he's saying, oh, they live in a world of lies. It's like, wait a minute, Brandon, are you talking about yourself? Right, exactly right. A, a, an administration literally built, literally elected on lies. And we'll talk about that in a second. Because yeah. the Duran had a great interview with the guy who owned the computer shop, John yeah. Paul Mac Isaac. Right. They had a great interview with him this weekend. And I learned a lot hearing directly from the computer store owner. Did yeah. you check that out, Jason? I did. I watched the whole thing, and I wanted to ask you some questions about it. Yeah, we'll talk about that, because there's, you know, the one thing that stood out to me is the Biden laptop story goes back much further than I knew. It goes mm -hmm. back to 2019. Right. And I was not clear on that. Were you? Um, I've been following it pretty much since the beginning, and I know that he said that he had given it to the FBI and they did nothing, which is why he went to Giuliani. And yeah, I think I did know that it was 2019 because that was all happening 2020, right around the election when he started talking to Giuliani and Tony Bobolinsky came about. 
The thing well, that I found that's, was interesting. That's the, the election. But I, I did not know it actually went back prior to the impeachment, the second impeachment. That's what I'm getting at. Yeah, I might it not was, have and been I, fully yeah, aware of that detail. Yeah. Yeah. People have not emphasized that. So what's another important Jason? detail? Well, the other important detail that he gave us, because, you know, Lee, I, here in New York, when I get a computer fixed, either it's run of the mill warranty stuff and I bring it to the Apple store or I'm bringing it over to Rossman Repair Group, which is maybe one of the most sophisticated laptop repair places in existence where they have like a clean room kind of thing going on and they'll do little micro surgery on the motherboard to replace components and things. I took for granted that other laptop stop, uh, shops are really probably not that sophisticated. John Paul McIsaac revealed that he was unable to clone the hard drive. And for people who don't know what that means, you know, on set, like when we're shooting Spider-Man or something like that, when the memory comes out of the camera, you don't just have somebody sitting there dragging and dropping files onto another hard drive and saying, here's your memory stick back. Oh, whoops, I forgot that big shot that you just spent $2 million on. They put it through what's called a checksum process where the data is, you know, bit by bit digitally copied and verified. And there are a lot of different degrees to which you can check some data. But when you clone a hard drive, it's that type of checksum process that's used normally. And that differs from simply dragging and dropping the files. It, this was important information because it debunked claims from Jack Maxey that he had found something in the data that you know wasn't there. A digital clone would allow you potentially to do something like that, but the type of file copy that John Paul McIsaac described would not. So there was a lot of important information that he gave people, and I, I actually want to listen to that interview again. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to listen to it. Do you, do you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go mm. through the dates that he mentioned. Yeah. And write yeah. all the dates down on a timeline because right. I find, as a journalist, you this is true in law too. When you can yeah. put, put together a timeline of events, often things reveal themselves when you're right. looking at them, especially mm -hmm. compared to other events. But that is a very important interview, and I would yeah. urge people to seek out the Duran interview with. John Paul Mac Isaac and Larry Johnson about that. And I spoke to yeah. Larry Johnson this weekend about mm -hmm. some things that suck out at me. But that's a very significant interview. And we'll talk more about that later because I got a lot to say about that. But the thing that struck out, stuck out to me is a technique that the Democrats and the deep state the FBI, the CIA, have been using. What they'll do is they'll call something Russian disinformation, okay? Yeah. But they offer no proof of it whatsoever. So they'll go to someone like Zuckerberg, and they'll say, we have Russian disinformation coming out. And Zuckerberg doesn't ask logical question, which is, okay, what? What are you saying is Russian disinformation? Right. Does that, does that make sense? What you're saying makes sense. Calling a laptop Russian disinformation does not make sense. It's a laptop. It could make sense if Russia said, if, if the, the FBI said, well, Russia planted it, 
that would be something. But even Whether then, the way true. they're describing it, no, it's just stupid. You could say the laptop contains Russian disinformation, but saying the laptop is Russian disinformation is not even, that's not even a sentence that makes sense. And I'm saying that what they do is consistently, and this goes back to Russiagate. In Russiagate, they came out and they said, the Russians are Guccifer too. Remember exactly. That? And that also makes and, no sense. They're just saying things that are facially implausible. Well, not only that, because I'll put it like this. Hunter Biden leaving his laptop is implausible. It is. Well, it's weird that he left it there. Not really, though. But it, I don't know. No, no, no. He's pretty cracked is, out a lot of the time. Well, I'm saying it. it uh, whether or not it's implausible, it happened. In fact, yeah. it happened. It's kind of implausible. Yeah. If someone said that sounds weird, I don't argue with that. But in fact, that's what happened. And so what yeah. you have to do is have independent proof. But what the FBI has done is they say the words Russian disinformation. They say right. this is Russian disinformation. And that's all they need to say. They offer mm -hmm. no proof at all. And no one asks for any. Have you noticed you know, that? That's interesting. I, I, well, I have. And as you're describing it now, I've just realized something else. It's, I think, the reason they're able to do that and the reason why they consistently do that is that the term Russian disinformation has become such a hot button phrase for so many people in the United States of America because they've been so bombarded with that from Russiagate. It's almost like it doesn't need to make sense. It doesn't need to be plausible. The second you say this laptop, Russian disinformation, that's enough of a connection in enough of the minds of enough of the audience that they don't need to try any, any harder than that. It's like conspiracy theorists. There are a lot of people who right. say, and there is a document from the CIA that was published after the JFK assassination that says that the CIA would like to associate the term conspiracy theorist with anyone who questions the Warren Commission. And now, 50 plus years later, I think that campaign has been so effective. Most people I meet think that the word conspiracy means that something is false. They'll just say, oh, that's just a conspiracy, meaning that's a false story. Because they've so connected it in people's minds that a conspiracy theory is something to be dismissed, they've now attempted to and probably succeeded to do that with the term Russian disinformation. They have succeeded because yeah. look what they're able to do. They both shut down investigations yeah. by just calling it Russian disinformation yeah. and mm -hmm. not pointing out, let me try it again, Russian disinformation. They're there able to say that. They, they say it and merely saying it, no one asks for proof, because if you ask for proof, you're a Putin puppet. Does that make sense? Yeah, you're a propagandist in their eyes. Right. So one thing that they shut down was the Senate investigation. Andrei Telzenko, the whistleblower from the Ukrainian embassy, who I've interviewed, we've talked about him many times, mm -hmm. he was— Ban he he's banned from the country. The U.S., yeah. Yes. And he was supposed to go in front of the Senate, and they kept Andre out of the country and kept him from testifying in front of the Senate by calling him Russian disinfo. And all wow. you have to do 
is look at his Telegram channel. He's not a fan of Russia. He's uh, Ukrainian. So in this right. conflict, he's clearly pro-Ukraine, 100 percent. And but he was called Russian disinformation and no one asked for proof. So his testimony was shut down in the Senate. And we'll be talking about that more this week. And John Solomon mm -hmm. shut down his reporting about that. I've shown you that story before. John yeah. Solomon, widely respected reporter, shut down his reporting. A good story that John Solomon reported was not published by Solomon. And I have it. But notice that time and again, all they had to do was go to Zuckerberg and say, Russian disinfo. And that was enough to have him censor everybody in the country who wanted to talk about the laptop. Right? Yeah. Well, that and, and Twitter, you know, shutting it down. They It's amazing the power they have to, uh, to hide an important story. And one of the things they don't have on me, I'm not afraid of that because, A, I work for Russian-funded media. And I wouldn't work for them if I thought there was something skeezy about that. Does that make mm -hmm. sense? You, you've you yeah. done the show, Jason. You're independent. Mm -hmm. And let me point out that Jason, when he comes on to guest house, is not paid. So Correct. there's no financial incentive for Jason to say anything. What's your experience Correct. working with Sputnik? Uh, I don't believe I've ever spoken to any employees from Sputnik other than you, Rod, the producer, and the command central engineer who is, I think, the same person every week. But sometimes I feel like there's a different voice there. Nobody's ever told me what to say. Nobody's ever contacted me after a show and said, hey, you said X, Y, and Z, and we don't like that. Nobody's ever said anything. And my understanding just from talking to you is that the only stuff I'm not allowed to say are things that the United States Federal Communications Commission has determined you're not allowed to say over public broadcasting airwaves, like curse words, as outlined by, I think, George Carlin one time gave a list. And don't say that list. No. But that's exactly right. But no one cares because just saying it's Russian-funded media is enough to discredit it with some people, right? It is. And you know what, Lee? I think if you knew some of the things that some of the American people you do business with go and fund, like everything that Netflix is funding and all the money that whoever owns Apple is giving money to, you, you would not do business with any company because you'd find some outrage over some position that some executive at every single company has that you don't like. And so what I find, though, is people around the world even though they shut down RT and Sputnik in Europe, people are finding it through VPNs, yeah. through listening on VK.com, through listening on Odyssey. Mm -hmm. People find the info. And you see the big protests in Cologne and Prague and France. And I, that's why I say this is consequential because large numbers of people are figuring out the truth for themselves. And they don't want to freeze and starve for a pointless war. Yeah. A war that started because Ukraine did not go along with the Minsk Accords. The reason right. the war started was because Ukraine violated the terms of a treaty that they'd signed. And no one ever talks about that. 
This is not an unprovoked war. This right. is a very provoked war. Right. What say you, Jason? I agree with you completely. RT was reporting earlier today that Roger Waters sent a letter to Zelensky's wife where he's just asking her, I'm, I tell you, in the last two weeks, I've become a Roger Waters fan, which I never was before, but he, he's, he's right about this. Well, a, a, a good thing to be a Roger Waters fan is the show that he did after the fall of the Berlin Wall. And he, mm-hmm. it's his performance of Comfortably Numb with backing vocals by Van Morrison and the band. It's fantastic. Have you seen that, Jason? I haven't. I'll go look for that. Look at Roger Waters' Comfortably Numb. It's an amazing performance. And the fact they did it after the fall of the Berlin Wall tells me he's against authoritarianism. Right? Yeah. Because yeah. he was celebrating the fall of the Berlin Wall. And it's amazing right. musically, too. Hmm. I see it here. 1990. Yeah. And it's stunning. It's really one of the best performances ever. And was also hmm. featured in one of the last episodes of The Sopranos. Uh, huh. And I'm, I'm surprised that The Sopranos used that version and not the original Pink Floyd version. But I, I yeah. prefer that one. I prefer the Roger Waters one because it, it's, it's amazing. But let's take a yeah. short break. When we come back, Jamal Thomas is joining us from the UK where apparently a pint is 20 bucks, 25 bucks. I want to ask about that. Yeah, and other things. So let's take a short break, Jason. What's the name of the show? This is The Backstory. Back in the backstory, and on 105.5 FM, AM 1390, in the capital of the Empire of Lies. And we are joined by guest host Jason Goodman, now from the UK, from London, the great Jamal Thomas, co host of Fault Lines, right here in Radio Spudnik. Jamal, how are you doing? I'm, I'm doing all right. Can you guys hear me okay? Yes. How yeah. are you, Jamal? Yeah, doing okay. No issues, no issues. Well, so Good. you're, you're, I dare say, you know, Jason, Jamal is a world traveler. And when yeah. I went over to England several years ago to cover the Assange, uh, taking of Assange from the embassy, mm-hmm. uh, people over there asked me about Jamal. They said, <laughs> how's Jamal doing? No, they, they did. Because you... <coughs> You're loved over there, and people ask me about you. I told you that before. Really? Yeah, that's absolutely. Funny. That's funny. Because There's they nothing knew. Nothing wrong with that. No, right. Nothing wrong with that. And I point that out, though. You've been to England many times. Does this trip to England was it different? Yes. Anything you notice on the way over at the airport yes. or going into town? Describe that for us. Yeah, so it is different. So the last time I was in London, um, London and Britain was still part of the UK, was still part of the European Union. Oh, right. Um, and during that time frame, it's like, you know, you talk to people and people complain about the government. That's normal. This time around, I engage 
like maybe around 10 people. All of them had the exact same story. All of them basically, because I usually I would go in and I would say, um, so you guys are getting a new prime minister. I mean, you know, Liz Trust takes power. What do you think about that? And the floodgates open. They'll tell you anything you want to know. And all of it has been basically, we, you know, we have no expectation of the things changing. We don't know what she's going to do. Um, the, the government is out to lunch. I mean, for God's sake, the energy costs, they're talking about um, 18.6% inflation in the first part of the year. And Liz Truss, her thing is like tax cuts. We need to cut taxes. That's what we need to do. And, you know, somebody, they would point out to her, hey, you realize that the bank is increasing interest rates to keep money out of the system in order to cut, you know, the, the inflation. She doesn't care about that. She wants, she wants tax cuts. The public itself is extremely worried and concerned about issues of energy and issues of cost, specifically around issues of food. And everyone to a man, I mean, whether it's a doctor, taxi driver, the guy works at a hotel, the people who are basically out on the street or in the bar, same story. We are concerned about these expenses and these rising expenses. And from their standpoint, they don't see a situation where the government seems to be doing anything to help it. If anything, on some level, the government makes it worse. Um, Trust is, she beat um, Sunak by around 20,000 votes. And the idea becomes, okay, now that she's taking power, well, because, you Jamal, know, Bush Johnson. Jamal, I, yes. I want to put on one thing. Those votes, so, these are is not a vote of the people, right? This is not correct. like it's a, just the conservatives. Right. Right. Well, that's the wild part. Right. Like, because, you know, when Boris Johnson took power the first time around, Boris Johnson called for an immediate election because he wanted to ensure his legitimacy. Basically, let's have an election. I'm calling a snap election. And that election is going to allow me, A, to show legitimacy and B, show that I can have a governing majority. Liz Truss is not going to do that. There's no way she's going to do that because, A, her, she got in by being an extreme hardliner to the other people who were in her party. Sunak and the belief or the, the zeitgeist, the word on the street, is that they believe that Sunak was responsible for Boris Johnson basically losing a premiership. They think that he put a knife in Boris Johnson. And so you still had a third of Tories who still wanted Boris Johnson. And that third of Tories that wanted Boris Johnson voted Liz Truss. So all of those guys at this point, like whether it's Johnson, Sunak, and the other members of the Tory party, are like, okay, now we must come together. We got to heal and we got to go forward behind Truss. But I mean, the woman is a lunatic. I mean, she said <laughs> stuff like, oh, we should send troops, we should send British troops to Ukraine. Britain, does, uh, Ukraine has a larger military than Britain. Put it in, put it in context. And then really? even stuff like um, where they cut so many regulations under her watch or under their watch that they had sewage in the beaches of Britain a few months ago. Like, so this person now who is fanatical about tax cuts and and tightening the government's belt and everything else is now in a situation where she is going to have to show the public that she has some kind of plan to deal with the energy costs in the short term. I mean, the reporting that was coming out of London was talking about the number of women who turned to prostitution in order to make ends meet. You had wow. the mayor of London basically saying— no, wait. Um, wait, you're saying Liz Truss has turned to prostitution? No, no, <laughs> that's, that's okay. not going to go well. <laughs> no, she fortunately has a job. She has a job. It's everybody else that has the issues, right? Wow. Um, no, Liz Truss didn't turn to prostitution. But I'm just saying, like, nightclubs, the heating bills. I mean, the, the governor, I mean, the mayor of London made the point of saying the people are may gonna, the people are going to end up having a, not, not a choice between food and medicine, but not being able to pay for either. I 
And when you talk to people, they, that comes up immediately. It's like, oh, my God, the amount we're paying for food nearly doubled or the amount we're paying for energy is skyrocketing. And that has downward effects on things like drivers, on things like business, on things like people just being able to keep their lights on or, or heat themselves in the wintertime. I mean, they're going to have people dying in the streets in Europe. Well, not dying in the streets, but dying in their homes of frost or, or cold because they can't necessarily afford heating. And so the government and the world, the country is looking to the governmental apparatus to do something about it. Now, she's supposed to come out with a plan, what, I guess, at the end of this week or next week, to try to explain her plan for dealing with the energy cost issue. They're, apparently, they're batting around this idea of freezing costs. But the problem is, costs are so exorbitantly high already, you know, it's basically freezing them at an extremely high rate already. So, you know, one of the guys was saying, talked about minimum wage, how they would increase minimum wage. But he kind of made the point of saying, well, look, you're still standing still because when minimum wage goes up a little bit, it's just matching how bad things are. And so it's not necessarily doing anything from the standpoint of their ability to either feed, clothe, et cetera. Um, no, they, they are all wary of what's happening and all of them are concerned. And that 18.6%, you know, if they screw up and they have this kind of ridiculous monetary policy that she seems to be running with, it's only going to make it worse. And they know it. They no, know I it. Assume, I, I assume I'm not putting any agenda on you, but I assume you eat food, right, Jamal? I try to, yes. I try to. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So have you noticed personally the price increases in food over there? You know, the thing is, I haven't seen it because I don't have a comparison to it. Like, it's one thing if I was, um, let's say, the last time I was in London, yeah, the last time I was in the UK, it was the currency was like one pound equals to two dollars or something like that. And now you have it where it's like one pound might be a lot, dollar and fifty cent, maybe a dollar thirty or something to that effect. The euro is basically broke even. So from my perspective, the dollar is stronger than what it used to be against the pound. So it's not something that I can necessarily tangibly see myself. But the people who are here, oh, they see it. They they see it fully. I mean, they would go through the grocery list and talk about, look how much my grocery bill costs now. Look how much this costs now. Or in fact, you even have people who basically make the point of saying, I can't afford what I used to afford several months ago. Because keep in mind, Britain has, has gone through several shocks. And I, I didn't even think about that when I was talking to the people. They made the point of saying, we never recovered. Um, there was one situation where there was like petrol, kind of a similar situation like we had with the US where you didn't have enough trucks and stuff like that. So stuff was um, empty. He made a point of saying how truckers may not want to even come across into the UK at that point because they don't necessarily want to deal with the red tape, in which case more shortages. Um, they didn't recover from Brexit. Beating all of this flowery language, look about Fortress Britain, Fortress Britain, saying stuff like that. Well, not so much. Basically, what you ended up was costs jumped almost immediately because of the red tape between trying to get goods from point A to point B, whereas one point they used to be this kind of united whole. Then you had COVID. And then after COVID, you had the energy shocks from the war. And you get a prime minister, Liz Truss, they're expecting her first call to be to Zelensky. Think about that. Think about that. Think how weird that is. That puts you in the mind of the Italian government where the government is literally wow. collapsing. And I believe it was Conte saying stuff like, um, well, I mean, the, the opposition is just trying to help the Russians. How are they trying to help the Russians? Because they want to get out, because the opposition wanted to get out of the war, was skeptical about the war because it was injuring the people who were in the country itself. I mean, how does that look, right? Your country is in economic turmoil, literally, in literal physical matter reality terms. Your people are literally suffering. And yet your response is, we need to get more weapons to Ukraine. We need to be the best friend to Ukraine. And we need to, you know, um, 
um, back Zelensky. They're missing the point. They're missing the boat, right? Like I, I've said before, there's going to be political destabilization in Europe as a direct result of the economic crisis in Europe. And Britain, the UK seems to be taking the worst of it. Like, they're, uh, man, like, um, what is it? Late night, the um, um, uh, nightclubs having difficulty keeping the like, lights on in the nightclubs. I mean, you go down the list, the bills that the people are paying, I forget the exact number, but they're paying like thousands of dollars more a year for energy costs. And the catch becomes, who can afford that? Meaning, even if the energy is there, you may not necessarily be able to afford it, which is why they're looking to the government for some level of either supplement or some level of assistance in covering the costs. But again, at the point where inflation at 18.6%, and it may even go higher than that, screwed. I mean, right now, they shut off Gazprom, right? And again, I kept saying, look, if you keep screwing around, they're going to shut it off. The argument, or what they need to realize is that if Russia is providing you a product, no country in their right mind is going to provide you with a product to keep your economy going in order to build weapons and bullets and guns in order to send to Ukraine to kill Russians. Nobody's going to do that. And so it's like they were always, it was always going to come to a point where it was like, okay, fine, you guys figure it out on your own. They're trying to come up with plans in Europe of what, 15% reduction in energy usage, and it's not going to be enough. The summer months wow. have been hot, which means they've been burning through their energy in order to just deal with the heat issue. So what does that look like when winter comes? Winter's coming. What does it look like? And with the bills that Britain is paying now as we speak, what is it going to look like going forward? You had a lot of people who were talking about um, protests, saying um, there might be riots in the streets. And one guy made the point. He was very clear. He says, look, it is going to take a spark. And when that spark hits, all hell will break loose. And you can point to, what, Prague? You can point to, um, oh, what is the other country that collapsed? I can't think of the name of it. It'll come to me in a moment. The Macron using his governing party. Draghi, jumping ship. Sri Lanka, right, Sri Lanka. But it is another European. Um, it's not Bangladesh. It's not Budapest. It's Bulgaria. Um, Bulgarian government collapsed. Like, that's it, it right. I mean, yeah. even Prague, 70,000 people coming out yesterday in a protest in Prague of all places. Like, I've never heard of a protest in Prague. Like, but all of that stuff is against governments not doing their jobs. And instead of, like, coming up with a foreign policy that is in the best interest of Europe, well, they tied themselves to the U.S. and jumped off of a cliff. Well, it's very possible, not just possible, it is true that the foreign policy of Europe is different, meaning Europe has different priorities than America. America was only bringing in, what, 700,000 barrels a day from Russia. Europe, 40% of their energy came from Russia, or 40% of their LNG came from Russia. So there's no way to basically replace that, in which case, you know, tighten your belts. Well, you can't tighten your belt if you don't, you know, at a certain point, you're already in dire straits. From the UK standpoint, though, they are having severe difficulties. And honestly, all of them know it. All of them are dramatically concerned about it. But none of them believe that the government will do anything substantial about it. Like the level of, I wouldn't even call it desperation, but the level of cynicism, and they would argue legitimate earned cynicism, is astonishing. And honestly, it feels like here, in a way, because the guy made the point of saying people are going to get to the point where they just stop voting because they're not going to believe it does anything. And it's like they bounce back and forth and you have two political parties and they have no belief that either political party is going to do anything about it. Like, I haven't heard one good word about the government since I was in there for the people I've talked to. And have you heard any good words about the labor opposition? My guess is no. not. 
Because there's a fact that they... is ridiculous. Right. Utterly ridiculous. Now, don't get me wrong. I mean, those guys put a knife in Jeremy Corbyn in order to prevent Corbyn from taking over and put Corbyn in this weird spot where Brexit was the topic and Corbyn couldn't talk about Brexit, meaning the guy who's running for the prime minister can't talk about the key main issue because his backbench is not allowing him to do it. He got the stuff and beat out of him. Here, Starmer is basically a Tony Blairite type new labor um, labor member. And so these guys aren't like um, whatever he comes up with is not going to, in real terms, ameliorate the worst edges of what is happening now. At least trust is supposed to come up with a long term plan for energy production in, in the UK. Well, we'll see what that looks like. Up to this point, she has been dodging a lot of the stuff that people have been throwing at her to try to get specifics because she haven't had to give that information because she's only talking to conservatives up to this point. Well, now she has to deal with the rest of the country. And we'll see. She's going to push off the election as late as she possibly can because as, you know, as, as charisma of a damp rag, um, Keir Starmer, well, is Labor's leading right now. Now, if she can't pull something off in the next few years, the government is going to collapse once again. I mean, think of how many governments they've had in a very short time. They had David Cameron, they've had Theresa May, they've had Boris Johnson, and now they're on to their fourth prime minister, in this case, Liz Truss. One lunatic leaves, another one takes— uh, Let me point out, those Czechoslovakia demonstrations, the Prague demonstrations, <laughs> those protesters, aside from being a big crowd, they had very definite demands. They demanded, yes. Jason, the entire government resign or fix or neutrality and lower energy prices by the 25th of September. So they made d different demands. And if they mm -hmm. get their way, everyone in Europe is going to see it. Do you agree, well, Jamal? That's the, that's the rub, though. Because, I mean, they have been threatening rolling blackouts. They've been talking about cutting down, like, thermostats. Like all of it's like taking less showers. So there were jokes about, you know, the only person who can get a proper shower is um, um, the German. What is that? The Schultz. Schultz. Um, basically, yeah, yeah if, if they do that. And by the way, I think that's going to happen in the United States, too, though. Like when Trump runs, I think there's a public sentiment, not just in U.S., but in Europe also, that even if we accept your framing of the Ukraine issue, we don't accept this consequence. Like, meaning, even if we accept the propaganda that you guys give, oh, Ukraine was just standing there, just like a, a dandelion in the wind, not doing anything to anybody, and the bad Russians, you know, came and plucked it up. Yeah, even if they buy that, all things being equal, they're still not necessarily wanting to sacrifice themselves and set themselves on fire for something like that, especially when it is hitting that hard, which is why I'm talking about the political destabilization. If they see that, meaning if Prague is able to pull that off, I don't think they'll pull it off, though. I mean, based upon what I've seen from the leaders and from the media, Ukraine is they are pathological about it. It is bizarre. Like they the media and the political establishment, and I think that I think I understand the reason why. From the policymaker standpoint, whether you're talking about Biden, whether you're talking about Johnson or some of these other people, they're not stuck with the consequences of the actions that they are basically taking. So mom and pop, who's just trying to make ends meet, their bills go up, they struggle, they suffer as a result. They can buy less. They can eat less. They may not be able to sit colder in the house. Boris Johnson is never going to have the situation where he's sitting at home cold. He's not. Like yeah. So the people who are in political power who are making certain decisions are not necessarily held to the consequences of those decisions in the way that we ourselves are. And so they can make those choices. I strongly suspect 
when Donald Trump runs in that race and he comes out and says, we sent $60 billion to Ukraine, um, look at inflation, look how much we're paying for gas, Joe Biden doesn't care, he's taking a Ukraine first policy, I strongly suspect the Republican Party is going to lump in with him on that. And when they lump in with that, it's going to give license to other people across the globe, especially in Europe, of making the same argument. I could be wrong on so, that. So, Jamal, but it's, you're it's saying Boris Johnson will not miss a shower. Is that correct? Yes. I don't think Boris Johnson will miss a shower. Because I would hate to think what would happen to his hair if he missed right. a shower. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Jamal loves hair. Jason, do you have a question or comment for Jamal? Yeah, Tom? yeah. Because a lot of what Jamal is talking about is, first of all, excellent analysis of some complicated stuff that I'm sure a lot of people listening were not aware of. But this is a very sophisticated analysis, Jamal. I think a lot of people walking down the street in London are not going to be as informed as you are or no, able not. to form as cohesive of an analysis as you just have. But what I'm seeing in the news here is the type of thing that will strike the person on the street, which is that pubs are raising the price of beer to 20 right. pounds. And I mean, this right. is the type of thing where, like, you've just given the intellectual, very smart person's explanation of what's going on. And a lot of people will look at that and blink politely and say, good day, governor. But when they walk into the pub and they want 20 quid for a beer, they're going to freak out. So to what extent yeah, is hurt. that happening? So that's the wild part, right? I mean, because it's not just beer, it's food in general. It's like right. food across the board has gone up. And so it's like, yes, paying that pub for beer. But I would argue to you that, you know, going into a supermarket, like you can, you could say, okay, I can forego the beer. Can't forego no, the food. But that pub crowd, forgive me for interrupting. That's where the rowdy people are because it's not a, it's, that is, Setting aside the nutritional value or that beer is a drink and food and whatever, people are going to that pub. That's a cultural thing in England. And when you start to have a barrier to that, people are going to freak out. Yeah. Well, I, agree also, with you. I assume people at football games, that's soccer for Americans. Yeah. yeah. I assume they drink beer there. And what are you going to pay for a pint at the football game? If you go to watch footy and you're paying 20 bucks, that's when the hooligans come out. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, people, are, people are going to be pissed. Yeah. I mean, because look, I think at this point they are. Wait, we should. Sorry. We should correct because anyone British listening will be confused. People are going to be not pissed and that's going to make them angry. Because <laughs> in England, getting pissed is being drunk. And in America, getting oh, pissed right, is right, being right. angry. <laughs> yeah, they're going to be angry. They're going to be very angry. Yeah, right. no, I, 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 you're right. Can you imagine going to sit into a pub with your friends after work and they charge you some absorbent price? Because that's right. the other part. Expenses tumble down. The companies themselves are not going to eat the costs. They're just passing those costs on the people who are already suffering and right. already um, taking a hit. And so whether that's sitting in a pub, whether that's going to a, a nightclub, whether that's going to a bar, that stuff is going to bite, man. And yeah, it's biting now. The catch becomes what happens, you know, what are they going to do? And that's what everyone is waiting on. What is Liz Truss' plan to deal with this? As opposed to tax cuts, which is the nonsense that she keeps um, talking about. But what is she really going to do? I mean, like I said, it's a conservative, right? She doesn't, this is not a big government party. And yet she's talking about spending, I think, $10 billion or 10 billion pounds or something like that in order to try to shore up the, um, the, the energy markets or at least assist people in paying for their energy bills. 
But again, if the energy bills keep going up, how, can, how often can you do that? Like how many times can you basically have this stipend in order to deal with energy bills that get higher and higher and higher? Not to mention, you add in another thing. If you remember, when Zelensky, um, when uh, I think it was Erdogan was bringing together peace talks between Zelen- um, Moscow and Kiev, and Boris Johnson jumps in and says, cut it out, cut it out. We're not ready for you guys to stop this war yet. And to make it worse, basically say, look, we're not going to give you security guarantees. Hey, make it the deal all you want, but we're not going to give you security guarantees. You're going to need our security guarantees for any particular deal, in which case they drop the deal. So in a situation where these guys are taking this economic hit, like straight to the mouth hit, and instead of ending this conflict, instead of dealing with that stuff, you have Bush Johnson basically scuttling the deal. And scuttling the deal, making all of that situation for you, for Europe and for that matter for the UK that much worse. It's astonishing. Well, also, they're asking people to sacrifice. But let me point out, for a war that Ukraine is losing, even the yes. UK media seems to—they're not saying Ukraine is winning. So all of the sacrifice, for what? Exactly. Ukraine is That's not- such a good point. Because if you ahead, think about Joel. it, we are in an economic war and a real— physical matter, reality war. Meaning, in one sense, it's like NATO expanded to the borders of Russia. And so I would imagine that they thought to themselves, yes, we have this opportunity. We can now take it to the take it to the Ruskies. And so using Ukraine as this kind of tip of the spear, so they were looking at a way of basically getting closer and closer and closer to the border. Okay, fair enough. Um, when all things being equal, when you're looking at this issue of um, Wait, so the answer that, ask that question one more time. I, I jumped the gun on the response, I think. I might have, I might be, no, I might have I, I was just that. saying, it's, it's not really a question. It's you, Ukraine is not winning the war. So oh, it's correct. one thing to sacrifice for a winning cause. It's right. tough, but some people will put up with that. But the sacrifice for a losing cause, who wants to do that? Jamal? That's right. You have to justify that to your populations. And all things being equal, they decided to have an economic war. And they decided to have a military war, and they're losing both. And it's less, it's worse than that, because all things being equal, it's not a situation like Iraq where, okay, we're sending money and troops, and we're going to kill a million Iraqis. It's not that where we don't get a blowback from that. We are hitting, getting hit with a blowback. I mean, Europe is getting hit with a blowback. I mean, can you imagine roving blackouts in Europe? Like this is in Nepal. When I was in Nepal, they had roving blackouts for like an hour or two hours a day. Can you imagine Europeans having to deal with? The lights going out for an hour a day because they can't don't have the energy and they have to conserve energy. What are those people like going to do? California. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> when I was in when I was in Lebanon, they were rolling back out. And again, you need to understand what that means is elevators in apartment buildings don't work for a couple Nothing. hours. Everything stops. Yep. Everything right. stops. And the question is, are Europeans who are used to this affluent living standard? Are they going to be okay with that? And is the politicians Macron going to say, hey, like abundance is over? Right. Yeah, but by far. And by the way, for the foreseeable future, like this isn't something that's just one year. I mean, right. They, they don't have a solution Russia, in place to fix this. Exactly. Russia and China, I mean, Russia is basically looking to the East. They're, you know, they've, they work with India, they work with China, they work with other BRICS nations. And you have these BRICS nations that are basically ascendant. While Europe has tied itself and isolated itself. That's the dirty secret, right? Like if you're in the West, you may think, oh, Ukraine is so important. But two-thirds of the world 
It's not engaged feminists. And even when those guys went to bag um, OPEC, when Joe Biden went in his assless chaps to bag, bag um, MBS for, for oil, well, he didn't give it to him. He was like, oh, we don't have the capacity. We don't have the capacity. Qatar didn't have the capacity. Do, um, UAE didn't have the capacity. Meaning they don't have a clear way out for the foreseeable future to replace the quantity or, for that matter, for the price point that they were getting from Russia. Hey, Jamal, in which we're case, almost out of time. We're almost out of time. Let me ask how long are you out there in England, and what are you planning on co- covering the rest of the time you're out there? Well, I was only in England for two days. The um, at that, After that, I'm coming back on my own vacation. Because I was on my own vacation. I, I, I jumped into Budapest. I went to Vienna. And I went to the U.K. to cover what was going on for the company itself. And then I came back to my own vacation. So, I was traveling around. Budapest was fascinating. Beautiful country. Yeah. I, um, I like yeah. Did you go to any bars going. in Budapest? Did you go to any of the ruined bars? I didn't get the chance to go to the ruined bar because I only was able to stay there for one day. I was meeting a friend of mine in Vienna. Um, but I was able to basically do um, sightseeing. I did the monster. What are these? Oh, monster scooters. These huge, like, <laughs> they look like um, these huge tire scooters. And you're zipping around Budapest in order to um, visit the sites. And Jamal, no, we're of out of time. But get some sleep. Enjoy your vacation. Fantastic report. The great Jamal Thomas is the co-host of Fault Lines with Thomas and Chan right here on Radio Sputnik. And let's take a short break, Jason, and we'll be back with the backstory. second hour of the show that brings you the truth behind the headlines. This is the backstory. Great conversation with Jamal Thomas from Fall Lines. Hey, Jason? Yeah, definitely. And a lot of insight into what's going on. I I predict Liz Truss will not come up with anything that's going to help things in England because everyone knows what to do. I'll tell Liz Truss in case she's listening. What you do is stop the sanctions war with Russia. That's not doing anything except making Russia richer and making the people of England suffer. And do you think she's possibly going to do that, Jason? No, I do not. I agree. Because she... First call Zelensky is not going to be... Well, sorry, Zelensky. We're out of here. We're stopping spending <laughs> That's my prediction. Yeah. But coming up this yeah. hour, the bail queen of New York, Michelle Eskenazi, will be joining us to talk about crime in New York City. And we're taking your phone calls, 202-521-1320. Jason, what's the name of the show? This is The Backstory. Now, a few other headlines. Did you hear about that stabbing spree in Canada? Yeah. The two brothers. And there's not much to say about that. It's horrible. But it seems to be drug-related. There's apparently a lot. And we have this problem in the U.S. 
there's a lot of drug gangs on, I'll say, Indian reservations. Some might say indigenous people homes or whatever. I, I don't know what's politically correct, Jason. What is a politically correct thing to say? Uh, about homeless people, you mean? No, about indigenous about indigenous people. I, I would oh. call them the res. Indian reservations have a lot of drug traffic on them. Have you heard that? I can't say that I know too much about that. So it's true up here. There's a lot of violent drug traffic. And apparently this stabbing spree happened in a part of Saskatchewan, which is indigenous people. And this guy, one of the murderers, the Sanderson brothers, one of them's been a cocaine user since he was 14 years old. And he's a long criminal record. Sounds bad. So apparently that stabbing spree is drug-related. You know what I thought when I saw that, Lee, is um, it doesn't matter, you know, all this stuff they want to do about guns. You know, criminals are going to find ways to harm people. And if they disallow law-abiding people in the United States from carrying guns, you're going to get these stabbing sprees and improvised explosion sprees and people running up on the sidewalk with their car and everything. I just think that crazy people are going to find a way to do crazy things no matter what. Well, let's talk about that for a second. I've seen a bunch of footage of people. You saw the footage for New York, right, of the lady in a, in a dispute. And she got in her car. I'm seeing people using their cars as weapons. Have you seen that, Jason? Where the guy in the wheelchair? Yeah. What would the guy in the wheelchair saw, do? I've seen people use the car as a weapon, but I didn't see the guy in the wheelchair. There's a guy in the wheelchair against a building. And you see some footage, they cut it off before she hits the guy. But it's a security camera footage. And she plows into a guy. And also, I saw horrible footage in Chicago, of a car going through. And I was, what are those little bits? And I realized afterwards, it was bits of people. The car hit them so fast, it literally broke the people apart. And you can see the parts dropping on the ground. It's horrific. But if you notice, increasingly, people using cars as weapons, not just in that parade, in Wisconsin. But, but you remember yeah. that. Well, I think the whole Black Lives Matter protesting on streets. I mean, you know, when when a crowd surrounds you in your car and you start to feel intimidated, I could understand how someone might, in an effort to escape the situation, do something. I mean, as a lot of people get very uh, erratic when they're under pressure. And if you step on the gas to get away, you feel like someone's about to break the window or hurt you or whatever. You drive away, you could drag somebody, kill somebody quite easily. So everything is escalatingly. It's not good. Yeah, it's very frightening. And I, I've noticed a lot of people are getting the idea that the car is a good weapon. And that's frightening. Now, yeah. one of the other things that happened this weekend is the judge shut down the Mar-a-Lago investigation. And the judge's decision was very bad for the government, for the DOJ. They appointed the special master that Trump wanted. That's correct. It didn't shut it down. It stayed it. It delayed it. It paused it. Well, that's what I mean. Temporarily shut it down. Stay, yeah. yeah. But 
That judge's decision was very bad. It was scathing, as the federal says, Jason. It was definitely bad for the government. But the thing that I'm finding most interesting about all of this, Lee, is that so little of it has to do with the actual law. It's it's almost like a jazz arrangement of the law where they're so far off the script. It's uh, it's crazy, but it all seems to be for the court of public opinion. And that just becomes a social engineering battle on Twitter of, you know, what all the Adam Parkamenkos of the world can do to convince people that, oh, this is a Trump appointed judge. So it can't possibly be fair. Let me ask you about that, Lee. When anything at all happens against Trump and it's an Obama appointed judge or a Biden appointed judge, that doesn't get considered at all. But when a judge, as in this case, says, hey, this is an unprecedented situation and we need this special master because you've already admitted government that you've taken 11,000 personal documents that were not classified. So we now need an intermediary, uh, an unbiased third party to come in here. Now all the people on Twitter on the left are saying, oh, this is a biased Trump judge who's coming in and helping Trump. Now, people like to talk about who appointed a judge, but anyone who's looked at things knows for a fact that you can't tell what a judge is going to do. You can say this on the Supreme Court. I think Stevens was Republican appointed, right? I think so. Uh, Yeah, let's check. And so— so you can't tell what a judge is going to do. And although you can tell consistently. Gerald the Ford judges, Right, right. He's a Republican appointed judge and he's been fairly liberal, right? Yeah, I mean, again, I think Gerald Ford is more of a criminal than a Republican, but that's a separate conversation. <laughs> but he, he, he is a Republican. Yeah, yeah. So technically, people were saying, well, a Republican appointed him. You can't predict what the judge, and it's dangerous to the rule of law. When the judge is in the courtroom, he basically runs things. And what the law says even doesn't matter if the judge wants to ignore it. And you can see that in New York or the federal Eastern District of Virginia. But let's get the calls. 202-521-1320. Tarif, go ahead. You're on the line. Go for it. Hey, how y'all doing? Thank y'all for taking my call. Um, okay, we got the November elections coming around. I, I know y'all already know that um, Saudi Arabia is taking, excuse me, the OPEC Plus is taking 100,000 barrels per day off the um, markets coming this October because, I mean, um, they're trying to uh, ramp down the production of petroleum. So that's going to have a prices influx on the markets. China, the CCP, which I said last week, along with that, will be pumping more money into the economy, trying to stabilize it, which will which will drive up hyperinflation along with the price of gas. Then I saw a report from Zero Has by what Russia's doing by cutting off gas. That's going to weaken the European economy, which you already see, the um, I know Jason already said that the the euro went underneath the dollar mm. because the um, the gas is not going to um, Europe anymore, and then you got the manufacturing companies that's in Europe cannot when when this is over in the next two or three years, it's going to be hard for them to compete against the Chinese, Japanese, South Korean, Southeast Asian markets. 
So you got all this going on where Europe is um, basically self sabotaging itself. You got the massive protests that's starting to come up in Europe now. You got winter around the corner. You got the November elections around the corner. Then you got the Euro, Euro, excuse me, the Euro, Europe um, leadership talking about posing the price cap, uh, price cap on petrol in um, Russia in December. You got all this going on, and you headed for like a disaster. So things is heating up. The the euro the the the, excuse me, the euro is going to collapse. Seems like and the dollar just going to get stronger and stronger. As investment going to leave Europe and come in here to where the markets is a little bit safer. But yeah, it's not good right now for the U.S. and also for Europe because it's, the the sanctions is backfiring on them and the price of gas and all that is going up. Yeah, Sharif. Sharif, um, what about this report from TASS where they said that Russia is maybe going to start, <clears throat> they're going to change the law to allow cryptocurrency for international trade. Did you see that? Pass said uh, that. Yeah, yeah. If they do it, it they, they cryptocurrency is going to be different from the U.S. cryptocurrency, where you, as you can see, BlackRock, Vanguard, um, Citibank, Morgan Chase want to get involved with the, with the they version of cryptocurrency. That's going to allow North Korea. Okay, the Russian version of cryptocurrency is going to allow Iran, Venezuela, Cuba, North Korea to trade, bypassing the Western sanctions. You know what I'm saying? So that's going to Would be it will allow anybody to bypass the Western sanctions. It seems like a brilliant idea. Why wouldn't they do it? Exactly. How can how could you and how do you know who's trading with who? Exactly. That's what you know. That's how good cryptocurrency is. You know, once I get, once I hopefully in the future get money, I'm buying me a whole bunch of Monero. I'm buying <laughs> a whole bunch of. That's what. Uh, that's what our old boy. Well, for people who don't know, Tarif, Monero is the most anonymous cryptocurrency, right? Exactly, is the best. Um, um, the uh, what's his name? Last year that died supposedly in jail. Uh, the problem was killed in jail. I forgot his name. The man, McAfee. He oh, John McAfee, yeah. Yes. He was a, he he had no cash on him. He, that's all he had was Monero, and that's really? how he was surviving. He was going all over the world to places that's all they took was Monero. And that's how he I was I don't living. believe anything McAfee says, though. He's a little bit of a... Yeah, he does talk a lot about Monero, doesn't he? Interesting. Yeah. Hmm. You think he's dead? Yeah, Sharif, do you think John McAfee's dead? I think he probably knew too much. He knew how the systems work in the NSA, CIA, probably. He knew how to, uh, he probably wrote some scripts for them, um, and he probably knew how things work, and he, he knew too much, and they probably got rid of him. But don't his girlfriend because said that he faked his death. His girlfriend, his, his girlfriend said that, and his wife said, no. well, who knows? <laughs> did you see that quote from her his wife said yeah yeah anything's possible i don't you need a he's up to all but, kinds of whatnot truth but we'll talk about that some more next week maybe yeah but, uh, J jason we talked about the huge protests in czechoslovakia and germany and france but also political leaders Salvini in Italy. Salvini is saying 
we're not going to go along with this. And that's a significant point. Some political leaders are saying they're not going to go along with this, the sanctions war against Russia mm. because it's not working. And that's significant. Did you see Salvini's comments? I saw that it's it's starting to crack. I didn't see Italy. I saw Poland saying that EU could break up over this. Yes. But Salvini said, We're, we don't want to go along with this, the sanctions war with Russia because it's working out disastrously. And so yeah. once you get political leaders start to buckle, and I, by the way, and it's going to have good consequences. That's why it's interesting that Jamal was in Budapest, because mm -hmm. Orban is one of the most independent political leaders. Right, right, right. And I don't think Orban's going to put up with this. You know, it's interesting, Lee, if you—I think you're right. And I think that if you look at RT, there is—look, everything's got kind of a pace to it, right? And Russia is absolutely building— Momentum. There seems to be a confidence in the reporting on RT. Like earlier today, there was a, yeah, it says Moscow reveals conditions for Putin Zelensky talks. And the conditions are basically as soon as Ukraine submits to all of our demands, Putin will talk to him. That is baller. That's just like, look, screw you. Do what we're saying. The other thing, joking aside, he goes on to say, this is a Russian military attache, goes on to say that the special military operation is proceeding as planned and its objectives are all being met. And Russia is just going about carrying out exactly what they said they would. They're not changing their story every day and presenting false stuff. And they're also, we haven't spoken very much today about the nuclear plant, but it was yes. knocked offline Good again point. yesterday. Right. It was because knocked offline. Did you see the quote from the U.N. with the IAEA? They did a press conference, and the U.N. person thanked the Russian Federation yes. for keeping yes. them safe. Did right, you, because you they had an that? amphibious assault. Yes, they had an amphibious assault. Ukraine launched an assault with something like 60 boats, little like kind of uh, fast boats, like little motor boats with, with uh, commandos in each of them, and like— all of them were killed and three were captured or something like that, like something like 60 boats. And they were all sank, killed, retreated. And Russia is there protecting the International Atomic Energy Agency representatives from being attacked by Ukrainians. It's absurd. This and we thing talked needs to Scott to Ritter about that last We talked to Scott Ritter about that last week. But uh, for the uh, person with the U.N., IAEA to say mm -hmm. thank you to the Russian Federation. Yeah. And some people were saying, well, lies. The, the person from the IAEA, he has no reason to say thank you to Russia. He's, they're not biased towards Russia. Does it right. make sense, Jason? Certainly not. They, they would have gone there just as suspicious. I mean, it's the UN. They have nothing to do with Russia. Right. And they back the New World Order, who Russia is fighting. So right. for him to come out and say that, and I, I see the media is starting, starting to buckle. They have to admit, they, they say two things simultaneously. Number one, they say Russia occupies the nuclear power plant, right? Got that? Russia occupies. Mm -hmm. Then it's being shelled. Well, who's shelling it, logically? 
if yeah. Russia occupies it. Right. Obviously, right? it's Ukraine. It's obviously Ukraine. Yes. But but they don't say that. They don't say. Yeah. And by the way, the thing that's the danger is the Ukrainian shelling. Right. Because basic common sense tells you don't lob missiles at a nuke plant. It's well, risky. the real danger. Yes. The real danger. And the reason why it going offline is dangerous. They were shelling a power line that supplies power to the nuclear plant. Because the plant itself requires electricity to run, and it's my understanding that that electricity is provided by something other than the plant itself, so that if there is an emergency, the electricity that runs the plant can be used to shut down the things that are having the emergency. So if you disconnect, like what happened with Chernobyl is that they were doing a test and the reactor lost power, and then they were not able to stop the nuclear chain reaction, like you introduce graphite or something like that to, to stop it from having a nuclear reaction. And if you can't do that, the nuclear reaction goes on and on and on and on and builds so much steam that the containment vessel explodes. And that's when all the nuclear radioactive steam, water, tritium, uranium, et cetera, gets released into the atmosphere. Just bombing nuclear fuel and bombing buildings and things, that's not really that big a deal. They're trying to shut down the power to the plant to cause a meltdown. And let me point out, it's another example of Zelensky's war against Ukrainian people. Right. Because let's think, let's think about that. Pulling the plant offline is the logical consequence of what, by Zelensky's regime, lobbing missiles at the plant. It's going to require shutdown. And who's going to suffer if the plant is shut down? Who's who's that energy going to? People in to? Ukraine. It, People in Ukraine are getting the energy. Right. And no one ever talks about, in the Western media, Zelensky's war against the Ukrainian people. But it's the Ukrainian people who are suffering and who are going to suffer. And I point out, after 2014, the Madan Revolution— after the Madan, people were starving and freezing in Kiev. This did not help the Ukrainian people. So I think I actually support the Ukrainian people, and Zelensky does not. Is that fair right. to say, Jason? Yeah, it's, it's sinister what's happening to the Ukrainian people, because I think there's a lot of people in Ukraine who maybe haven't had a college-level education. I mean, it's not an uneducated country. But, I mean, look, even in the United States, people are dumb because they're fed lies and they believe them. And I think a lot of people in Ukraine and Europe are suffering from the same thing. They all believe, they just believe the opposite of the truth, and unwinding that is so difficult. And I say you something over the weekend. Uh, it was a list that Andrei Telzenko the Ukrainian yeah. diplomat was a whistleblower, was given of people he should keep in the loop of people. Did you see that list? Yeah. So I can't publish it there. because it, it contains addresses and phone numbers for people. Let me point out a couple of names on the list. Did you notice that Anthony Blinken, when, before he was Secretary of State, was one of the people 
who Andre was told to keep in the loop. Anthony Blinken was on the list of people to keep in touch with. Did you see that, Jason? Yes. Madeleine Albright. Right. Steven Spielberg. Did you check that yeah. out? Why? Why? I didn't know what this list was about because I saw him there. I was like, what the hell is he there for? It was a list of people that Andre, as a diplomat in the Ukrainian embassy, was told to keep in the loop about what's going on with Ukraine. Did you mm. notice also the name Leo Chalupa? Yes. So I've talked many times about Alexandra Chalupa. That is her father. Mm-hmm. So I would say that Leo Chalupa has some connection. Did you see all the people connected with or the NED, for instance, or the, with Brookings? Did yep. you notice that? Yes, I did. So, and also Hillary Clinton, I noticed. Yes. And Do you know what I meant to tell you uh, about the NED that was very important? What? So the... So explain what the NED is for people who might not know. Well, that's the National Endowment for Democracy, I think it stands for. Yes. Right? And it's just a, it's a think tank. You know, it's sort of unclear what all these things do. But the National Endowment, what's that guy's name? Uh, Vargasy. So I think I had mentioned to you that an individual named Maju Vargasy was the head of the White House military office until January of 2021, and he left. And the thing that's interesting is it seems that Vargasy, I'm not sure if he's the first, but it seems like he might be. He's one of the only civilians to occupy this position. It's normally, I mean, the White House military office, it's normally some army person or Navy person who this is handling Air Force One and all the president's communications and the motor pool and everything. And this Maju Vargasy, who is now the chief operating officer of the National Endowment for Democracy, was the last director of the White House military office, which has been headless. It's it's the flying Dutchman of secret agencies since January of 2022. Maju Vargasy is married to the chief operating officer of the uh, Atlantic Council. And a number of people from the Atlantic Council are on there, too. Right. So, I mean, this is unbelievable because we have all these, you know, private nonprofit things that we don't really know where the money comes from. We don't really know what they're doing exactly. It's a chief operating officer, Julie Vargasy of the Atlantic council. So, I mean, these guys are running all these things that then get appointed to be the disinformation governance board. And there's all these hidden secret things that can bring lawsuits against people and make complaints to social media to take your uh, ability to communicate away. It's sinisterly. And Jason, let's take a short break. Because we're joined by Michelle Eskenazi, the bail queen of New York. We love talking to Michelle. She's on with us next on The Backstory.
we're back on the backstory and on 105.5 FM AM 1390 in Washington, D.C. Joined now by our friend Michelle Eskenazi, the Bail Queen in New York. Hey, Michelle, how you doing? Hi, Michelle. Hey, Lee, how are you? I'm okay. Welcome to the show. So, you've been fighting as an advocate for law and order and against the Soros war on law and order and the ability to protect people and protect yourself for many years. So, what's the status? Jason and I were talking about the horrible chaos we're seeing in New York lately. And I know you and Jason somewhat disagree on this. Jason, you're not a fan of Mayor Eric Adams at all, are you? Correct. And Michelle, I, I, I'm not saying you're a fan of his, but you're willing to give Eric Adams a chance. Is that accurate, Michelle? Yeah, I mean, of course. I mean, he's a retired captain from the NYPD. I mean, you can't really ask for, well, not going to get a better mayor for New York City than someone that has that kind of experience. That was my hope, and I was willing to give him a chance, but he seems to have been failing badly. Well, I mean, was his past tense, right? And um, his he's going to be in office for quite some time, so I suggest that you, uh, you know, take another look. <laughs> he's going to be there yeah. for a bit of time. Well, so but let me ask you this, because— no, Go ahead, yeah, go ahead. No, no, go oh, ahead, Jason. What, 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 what is the bail queen? How do we get that? I don't know that much about you. I apologize, Michelle. I wasn't told you were going to be on the show until I arrived. What makes you the uh, bail you queen? I thought you met Michelle before. No, that no. was that was my mistake, Michelle. Okay. We're joined by guest co-host Jason Goodman. Jason, Michelle, Michelle, Jason. Hello. There we go. How are you? Um, so, I mean, um, the bail bond queen is trademarked. It's just a. Uh, uh, a name that my um, my clients gave me many, many moons ago, and it stuck. And um, I've been involved in advocating against bail reform now for about 13 years um, nationally. Um, by way of information, I'm the president of the National Association of Bail Agents. I just came back from a national panel on bail reform, which Benjamin Crump um, led. That was— Whoa. Um, but um, as it pertains to what's going on in New York City, I, I don't think that it's difficult. I think it's very simplistic, and I think it completely defies political ideology. Um, and that is, when criminal recidivist offenders know that they are not going to have a consequence to their actions, they're going to continue to commit crime, period, yeah. and, it, and it emboldens them. And no one on any side of any aisle that can tell me otherwise, because I've been running crime in New York City successfully and accountably for 30 years. I'm interested now, in Benjamin but, Crump's input at the thing. What, what was he saying about bail reform? You know, I don't, you know, he didn't really opine as it pertained to bail reform. I think that, you know, what we were talking about more um, was the right to bail. And when you circumvent and you remove the right to bail, um, then you have a completely different conversation that um, moves away from bail reform in a certain way. Um, because um, countries that do that, for example, are China and Iraq, right? So in other words, if you're, you get arraigned, 
and they deem you dangerous, and your country or your state doesn't have a right to bail, like the like the state of New Jersey, for example, which is a communist state pertaining to bail, um, you no longer have a, quote, right to bail. So then you're held in detention until trial. And that's what China does, and that's what Iraq does. And, Michelle, let's point out that these source-funded DAs have actually provided a kind of service, although it says the expense of people, but they've instituted bail reform. Getting rid of bail, that, that's what that means, Jason. Getting mm-hmm. rid of bail. And we've been able to see the consequences of that. Right, Michelle? What have the consequences been where they've gotten rid of bail? We know that now. You know, Lee, it's a very valid point. Thank you for bringing that up. Um, I think you know very well that I'm involved um, in a lot of victims' advocacy. By I, myself, and I'm a domestic violence um, escapee survivor. So what bail reform does when it's packaged up by guys like, you know, Gascon in L.A. and Greg in New York City, um, is it, it just creates a victim, a crime victim's pool. And one of the conversations that bail reformers never want to have, with me especially, because if I can speak well, is about crime victims. So they just want to kind of skip over that one particular subject because they're extremely concerned and honed in on the talking point that offenders cannot afford bail, and that's the reason that we're moving this country in this particular direction, because we should be advocating for them. We should never advocate for the law-abiding, and we should never advocate for crime victims, because, you know, we just don't want to mention them. It's just like a dirty little secret. No, and I saw some headlines about this recently. They're finding, you know, this catch-and-release program where they put violent criminals back on the street, Jason, has worked out exactly the way you think it would work out. It's badly. And the people who are attacked, the victims, are often the people from the communities where the offenders come from. Right, Michelle? Oh, yeah. I mean, and it's not quantified. You know, the thing about all these bail reform talking points is that none of the stats are quantified. They're just these incredible mythological fables that are written by these, you know, writers that just kind of pick pick up and go with the story, but they never quantify the numbers. So, yes, the black and brown communities are the most affected because when you release the recidivist drug dealer who's selling um, fentanyl, in the schoolyard, and you release him over and over and over and over again, he's going right back to the schoolyard. The schoolyard happens to be in the Bronx or happens to be in Harlem. And it's just a conversation, again, it's just another conversation that they just don't want to have. I want to have it. I want to have it with everyone that will listen, especially Kathy Hochul. So what do you think of Hochul and what she's been doing specifically? Well, I mean, listen, we were able to amend bail reform again this past April. This is the second time we've amended bail reform in an electric blue trifecta. So they know that the way it was rolled out under Don Cuomo was horrifying, right? So they had to amend it the first time. They had to add more crimes that were bailable offenses, like vehicular homicide, for example. Now, the newest amendment, I think the most... I don't know, I think the sounding part of the newest amendment 
is that misdemeanant offenders can now, recidivist offenders, can now be considered for bail. Whereas, you know, yesteryear, you know, when bail reform rolled out, misdemeanors were just, you know, you know, you're allowed to go free. But misdemeanors, I mean, can be, there's some sexual assaults that are classified as misdemeanors. Misdemeanors is a misnomer. So I'm confused. And I think if I'm confused, there might be people listening who are confused. So right now in New York, it seems like people are doing violent crimes, getting arrested. Like there was some 16-year-old kid was in an insane brawl with a uniformed NYPD officer on the subway. And then we heard that that kid got out like that day or the next day. So he's out on bail. Bail reform is making it so that kid cannot get out or so that kid gets out because it seems like Benjamin Crump would be on one side. I'm not exactly understanding the whole picture here. Well, you know, you're not exactly understanding it because what I always say about bail is that it's a mythical four-letter word. Um, It's a very difficult subject for me to explain to you in, in a short period of time, obviously. But, you know, when, as it pertains to that particular young man that you were saying that beat up a New York City police officer, yeah. I don't know what his bail was, but, you know, um, the fact of the matter, what's happening with a lot of these cases is that they'll get written up by the police officers because it's probable cause, obviously. So they'll get written up as, let's say, a violent offense. And then by the time Alvin Bragg puts that offender through arraignment, he will reduce down the charges to something that ah, right, right, right. or very, very low charges so that that offender can get out. And it's a little tricksy thing that they have in their little tricksy toolbox, and they use mm-hmm. it often. They mostly use it in New York County and Bronx County. Um, they don't use it as much in the outer counties. But listen, Lee Zeldin is not just fighting for New York, right? I mean, for the city of New York, he's he wants to be the governor of the entire state. So these sorts of um, movements that are happening at the arraignment level that most people don't understand um, are not just happening in the city of New York. They're happening in Albany. They're happening in Rochester. They're happening in Newburgh. They're happening in places where there are high crime rates. Yeah. You know, you mentioned Lee Zeldin. And during his speech, a guy came on stage with a knife and he was let out almost immediately, right? Right, Michelle? Yeah. Yeah, but that goes back to what I just said. I mean, he, the felony complaint was probably, and listen, I don't have it in front of me, but it was probably written up in a staunch way, and the district attorney reduced it down prior to arraignment. But then Lee Zeldin had the case federally. But, you know, listen, Lee Zeldin has the ability to have a case picked up federally, right? Because he works for the mm. federal government, right? Right, exactly. Your kid, and you, you know that happened to your daughter coming home from Pace University at night. Yeah, you can't do that. You no, know, have you know have the guy federally arraigned? And Unbelievable! Jason, what's going you on? You know what Michelle's talking about. Bail reform's been an issue for about fifteen years. As promoted, yeah. I, I would say it's not Crump's issue. His issues free floating stuff. But it's Soros's issue. And what they make the argument is that bail is racist. And Michelle, is not one of their big arguments. Basically, bail's racist. Listen, bail is racist, 
every single thing that they don't agree with is racist. Racist is just the the keyword, right? It's just the word. Yeah. You know, everything is racist, 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 racist. But, you know, the thing is, I love to have these conversations because I'm Cuban-American and I'm a domestic violence survivor. So when they look at me, maybe I don't look Hispanic, but I love to have these conversations because they can't call me a racist. They can call you a racist, Lee, because you're white as the ghost. So you know. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Michelle. <laughs> Go ahead. Lee's, Lee's got to get some sun. <laughs> but you know what I mean. It's, 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 like the, it's like the thing to say when they have nothing to say. Yeah. You yeah. go to the black communities and you go um, speak to women that are trying to work during the day and then maybe go to college at night and trying to get out of the project better for themselves and better for their families and ask them what their opinions are, I would venture to say that they don't want these particular offenders back in their communities in five minutes. And Jason, this has been part of Soros's criminal justice reform agenda. And what they've managed to do in state after state is basically get rid of cash bail. Well, I, but that's the term that they use. But right. Michelle, explain how bail, why, why does bail work? Bail work. They, they, I, I think that's easy. You know, I think that's easy for someone like me to explain. Right. And listen, yeah. if you're a different kind of Hershey bars, you are a different kind of bail. Right. So one of the components of bail that has worked historically since the inception of this country is something called secured bail. A lot of the times people refer to it as cash bail or a bail bond, but that's really what it is. It's a secured bail policy, and it's backed by an insurance company. And essentially what that, what that entails is mom, dad, auntie, uncle, grandpa get involved in the particular, in the release of that particular offender and the bail agent and the family members monitor that individual until final disposition are in close contact with the court and the district attorney. And that has worked historically because of something very simplistically called skin in the game. Um, but when right. you have like a so lot of it, and, in other words, if you're a criminal, excuse me, Michelle, I, I want to see if I understand this correctly. So if you're a criminal and grandma has you know, mortgage your house to pay your bail. Grandma's yeah. watching you. Right, Jason? Does that make sense? And it's also, it's a different thing for somebody to go and knock over a gas station versus doing something that they know is going to cost their own grandmother their home. You know, and then, then also somebody like your friend Dog the Bounty Hunter is going to come after them now if they skip out on the bail. You got a bail bond, you know, bounty hunter. Yeah, it makes sense. And it might be their own money that they want to get back and everything. So it keeps people around. Right. Michelle's essentially right. Recovery agents. But yes, that's correct. And that's why, you know, and we will go over state lines to bring back a warranted offender and um, and bring that offender to the home floor of the court. And that's why this that's another component as to why the secured bail industry is so incredibly successful. But there are other forms of bail, like PR bonds, which means personal recognizance bonds, which means I'm an offender. I just beat up your daughter on the subway platform. The judge thinks that that's a misdemeanor, and so does Alvin Bragg, and that's how they wrote up the complaint. And now I'm going to sign myself out of jail, and it's called a bond. 
but it's really a personal bond. So I'm promising the court that if I don't show up, even though I'm indigent or I'm a drug dealer and I don't declare an income, I'm going to promise the court that I'm going to pay it $10,000 if I fail to appear. And even though the results of that are pretty clear to anybody who's dealing with the criminal justice association, the results, PR bonds don't work. Right, Michelle? We know that. No, I mean, <laughs> I mean, why would they work? Listen, if I was a criminal recidivist, I'd sign those babies every single day of the week and get my feet back on the street. So, I mean, that's what happens. Look at Chicago. Chicago doesn't have a secured bail system, but it's, uh, it's an abortion of justice. And the taxpayers fund this system, and they don't even know it. They have no idea that they're funding it in the tens, hundreds of millions of dollars. They have no idea. And I think in Chicago this weekend, I'm not sure if I get any numbers right, but these are about right. Forty people shot, six murders in Chicago over Labor Day weekend. Did you see that, Michelle? No, you know, I've actually not watched the news in a couple of days. I've been taking a little bit of a hiatus. Um, Good for you. Come to me. Yeah, it does come to me whether I like it or not. Um, but of course, I mean, Chicago is murder city. Offenders know that, you know, they're going to shoot somebody and they're going to get a rain and they're going to be back on the street in five minutes. You know, but here's the thing, and this is what I would challenge even an AOC type to. If you have children and you tell them you're allowed to go play on the Belt Parkway, it's perfectly okay. Go play, you know, I don't know, hide and seek on the Belt Parkway. It's, nothing's going to happen to you. It'll be fine. That's not true. We don't do that with our children because that's not how we raise our children. We raise our children with consequence. You cannot walk into the middle of the street, hold mom and dad's hand, look both ways before you cross, stranger danger. These are common sense ideals that we implement and we teach our children. Criminal recidivist offenders commit crime for a living. If they don't know, if they know, rather, that there is absolutely zero consequence to committing crime, then guess what? Crime begets crime begets crime. One and one is still two in America. Right. And again, Jason, this is another example of what I'm seeing as a war on common sense that we see so often in America now. Do you agree, Jason? Yeah. I mean, it's just— how could it be anything but common sense? If somebody commits a crime and you catch them, you stick them in jail. And then they have a trial. And if they're guilty, they stay in jail. But I don't know. It's, it seems like there's something here that, that doesn't make sense that's being prepared. Like everybody who wants to let criminals out of jail, I don't understand what the logic is. Michelle, try, try to explain if you see any law. Because I, I, there's no logic. This is why the, their argument ultimately comes down to racism. And even right. that's not true. Logic. And so there's logic in letting people out of incarceration, because I'll give you an example, Jason. If I accuse you of raping me, okay, violent crime, and you get arraigned in, I don't know, Nassau County, New York, the judge said $150,000 bond. You didn't do it. You really didn't do it, but I hate your guts, and I'm accusing you of doing it, okay? Um, but if you 
can't get out of incarceration and prepare for trial. Then but wait, we got to stop a second, because the fact that you've just created a situation where you're saying someone can knowingly create a false accusation. And now I have to spend the next five years of my life paying lawyers. And I mean, this isn't even the situation I'm talking about. I'm talking about somebody gets on stage with a knife and Lee Zeldin struggles with the guy to avoid getting killed. And now that guy gets released. There's a ton of evidence that he did it. Sure, he's still presumed innocent until proven guilty. But I don't even understand why the police are coming over here to arrest me on the basis that you've just made an allegation. How do you know this guy who you claim raped you? Where did it happen? Where did you see him? Don't they need some evidence before they take me and stick me in jail even for two days where I could be killed in the jail cell on your false alley? Like, I, I, I'm very concerned about this entire conversation. I'm very concerned about any kind of conference that involves Benjamin Crump, who is a liar and a criminal himself. And I'm not sure exactly what's going on with bail in this country, but I think that people who commit violent crimes, we are hearing stories in the news about people who have committed five, 10, 20 crimes and are being let out of jail because of all this bail reform. I get it that the notion of you just got arrested and if you have money, you can get out of jail and if you don't have money, you can't. I agree that sounds like a bit of a problem, but I also recognize that we've got a backlog of cases. This all comes down to a major issue for me, which is that the justice system in this country is fundamentally broken. And we can argue about how bail works and we can argue about why Donald Trump is getting his house raided and Hillary Clinton didn't and uh, Hunter Biden didn't. But what we really need is to fundamentally examine the way the law and law enforcement in this country works. How can people have SWAT teams coming to their houses two and three times risking people's lives without the SWAT team devising some better system for determining if they have accurate calls or not? You just provided an extremely troubling example. In your example, because you hate me, you have a scenario where you accuse me of rape and now I'm in court preparing for trial. That is ruining somebody's life but over a no false allegation. Jason, no one's arrested. The police do investigation. They don't just take Michelle's word in this case. They don't, don't take like the someone's word. I didn't like the setup. I didn't like the setup. And I just think That's that just, we've got. You also didn't let me. You also, I mean, in my defense, you didn't really let me finish. But listen, in domestic yes. situations and in divorce situations, Jason, I'm sorry to tell you that those sorts of things, they get very, very ugly and they get very violent every single day throughout America. So those sorts of things actually do happen because men and women hate each other so much when they're going through these domestic sorts of issues. I was just kind of giving you one example. What I was trying to explain to you was that everyone should have a right to bail, but as it pertains to recidivist violent offenders, and that's what you were just talking about, Judicial discretion applies. In those sorts of instances, the judges should remand, and remand, remand means put a defendant into custody without a chance of bail. In those sorts of situations, quite possibly, the, the a judge should remand that particular offender if, those, if there's change of circumstance whereby the defendant is found somewhat, you know, innocent. There, there, you know, there are, you know, there are some things that just don't add up. Then that defendant lawyer has the right to file writ of habeas corpus 
to the appellate division and say, hey, you know, my client is remanded with no chance of bail, Your Honor. But guess what? He didn't sell fentanyl. It was, I don't know, baby powder. You know what I'm saying? So now, you know, the labs are back. I want my client to have a right to bail. So, you know, the right to bail is so incredibly important. And as it pertains to Benjamin Crump or the Reverend Al Sharpton or Joe Biden or Donald Trump, there are always going to be people on both sides of every single subject. And I am most willing to speak to every single one of them because as it pertains to bail, it's a subject that I know very, very well. And um, I can speak with you about it for hours, not just uh, not 10 minutes, hours and hours and days. Months. And and Jason, we know it's having to bail. The, the people sit again, Soros, I've done research on this. Soros is behind the anti-bail movement. And the results have been criminals back on the streets. And there's no logic behind it. There's They don't care about the people. They don't care about the effects. All they use is a racist argument, and they've gotten rid of it. And talk about what Cuomo did initially. What did he do that he had to back off, they had to back off from? Well, what our former president did was um, he passed the paid political agenda known as bail reform. In the, um, he signed it into the April 19, 2019 budget. It went into effect on 1-1-20. And basically, it was a blanket canvas for offenders to get out of incarceration. Zero bail. And what happened was, unbeknownst to Governor Cuomo, is that COVID hit in March. So all the reporters, because on when the clock struck midnight on one one twenty, the offenders went bat crazy. You know, they started robbing banks and raping, pillaging, robbing, and you know, drug deal. It just went because they all knew it was coming, so they went crazy, especially bank robberies. Right, so. Cuomo was doing his little shows every night with COVID, and the reporters were going, uh, Governor, Governor, bail reform, bail reform, COVID? Governor, Governor, COVID, COVID, bail reform? And he didn't want them talking to him anymore about bail reform. He wanted to be a, a rock star. So he needed for that particular you know, subject to go away. So then... Um, unbeknownst to the people of the Empire State, again, in the April 2020 budget in an omnibus bill, just like he did on the 2019, he put it right in the middle of like a 5,000-page budget bill, um, he changed some of the bailable offenses and included charges like vehicular manslaughter, which means that I'm drunk, I'm driving, and I kill three people. So if I do that, I should be subject to bail. In the first go-around, I was let out with, you know, no bail. And, Michelle, we're almost out of time. Tell people where they can find out more about the disastrous effects of bail reform. Um, always reach out to me at the National Association of Bail Agents.com, and I'm always willing to talk to anyone pertaining to that mythical four-letter word, bail. And, Jason, great conversation and great job hosting Jason Goodman on a Truth Tuesday. Thanks to Michelle Eskenazi and Jamal Thomas from London, two great guests on The Backstory.